Welcome to All Shall Be Well, a conversation hosted by InterVarsity's Women in the Academy and Professions, giving voice to women seeking to live fully into their God-given callings and be a redeeming influence, whether in the university or beyond. This is Caroline Trisick, and on this episode of All Shall Be Well, our guest is Dr. Lisa Deem. Lisa writes and speaks on spiritual formation through the lens of history. She has a PhD in late medieval art history from the University of Chicago and is the author of A World Transformed, Exploring the Spirituality of Medieval Maps. Well, hi, Lisa. Thanks so much for being with us today. With most of our audience in academia, can you share a little bit about your educational background as well as how you ended up in your current vocation? Yeah, and thank you for having me on, Caroline. Well, I have a PhD in late medieval art history, and I was also, after that, then a Lilly Fellow in Humanities and the Arts at Valparaiso University, and my PhD is from the University of Chicago. And so after I graduated and was a Lilly Fellow, I was planning on a career in the academy, but I discovered that teaching was really not my vocation, but uh, that scholarship and writing still were very much my vocation. So I began writing about the material I had studied, writing for a more general audience. And today, I write and speak on spiritual formation through the lens of history, usually medieval and late medieval history. Great. So in your um, study... Uh, especially like the medieval history, what has been the most meaningful aspect? Well, for me, and I'm talking in, in general terms right now, it has been discovering how my work or the whole period of medieval history and art and spirituality has intersected with my faith and how it informs my faith really every day. So for me, I found out that doing history really is spiritual formation, a form of, of formation for me. And then can you say more about that? Like how, in what ways does the history shape your spiritual formation, if that makes sense? Yeah, I'll get into some specifics on that. Well, one thing that I like to, one way I like to describe it is to ask and answer the question, why do you study history? And my answer would be, I am time traveling in search of God. Mm. So I find images and truths and people from the past sharing about Christ through history in a way that informs my faith. The Middle Ages has given me, I'd say the biggest thing that that, ha- that has given me is a, a set of imagery, some verbal and some visual, to grasp certain truths about Christ and the gospel and to hold them closer. And in some cases to see Christ a little more differently. Do you feel like then there are particular people when you time travel, so to speak, particular people from the past that you have learned from? Yes. Artists, since my, I started out in art history and So definitely artists from the past, um, manuscript illuminators. And then I began getting more and more into the medieval mystics. 
and they have begun to to shape me through their largely through their verbal imagery. Mm. Anyone in particular? Yes, um, we have one of my favorites that maybe we'll come back to um, okay. in a bit. Possibly is an English medieval mystic of the late 14th century, and his name is Walter Hilton. He is not as well known as some of the other medieval mystics that are on everyone's tongue today. I I think he's overlooked and underrated. And he wrote a spiritual formation handbook in the late 14th century called The Scale of Perfection that is so, has some parts in it that I think are so down to earth. And then some imagery too that has really spoken to and shaped me that that he's he's my favorite the title the scale of perfection sounds really intimidating but <laughs> i'll trust that that's there's some things in there that are, are valuable right there's some good nuggets in there yes nice. so what has what changed about you you shared a little bit about spiritual formation what changed about your view of christ and your and your view of the church through your research? Okay, well, in general terms, I would say about my view of the church that studying history or beginning to, to realize how history intersects with my faith, that has helped me to see myself as part of the community of saints, mm. more some living and some dead. It's helped me to see that my faith has really deep roots. Um, so it's helped me to see more of myself as part of the church eternal and the church in history. Now, to get into something really specific about Christ, I, as you know, Caroline, have been a fan of and have been studying medieval world maps for a while. And certain types of maps have really shaped and enhanced my view of Christ, a view that's found in Scripture. Let me explain that just for a minute. There is a certain type of medieval map, really made throughout the Middle Ages, in which the world is shown as a circle and centered on the city of Jerusalem. And the maps that I have studied the most date to around the year 1300. And so, as I said, the maps are centered on Jerusalem. It's in the center of the circular world. And often the city of Jerusalem is accompanied by a small picture, sometimes of the crucifixion or, in one case, the resurrection. Hmm. So, these maps picture a world centered on Christ. And as I began studying these maps more and more, I began to see how much this medieval vision of a Christ-centered world was speaking to my faith. As I studied them, I began to think of the maps in relation to a couple verses from the Bible, for example. If you take the verse from the beginning of Colossians, this beautiful hymn of praise that Paul wrote, probably Paul, in the Mm -hmm. book of Colossians, that ends, he, Jesus, he is before all things, and in him, all things hold together. And these maps, which I'm sorry that we and the people listening can't see right now, uh, these maps that center on Christ, I think, give us a beautiful picture of Jesus 
holding all things together, holding the world together. It's a very cosmic view of Christ as the center of creation. So that, that helped enliven this, this wonderful cosmic vision of Christ for me. That's beautiful. And I think even though we, you know, we can't see it, you can imagine, right, this, as you described it, the crucifix or even the resurrection in the center of it with everything else around it and Christ holding everything together. Right. right. Because the maps, the larger ones that I've studied, they like the Hereford map, for example, that's still in Hereford Cathedral today, made around 1300. It shows all parts of the world as it was known in the Middle Ages. So it has hundreds and hundreds of pictures and inscriptions about the world. So many wonderful places to train your eye and to explore the world. And what I love is that the center of all of them is Christ, that he really centers and holds together all parts of the world. And that makes sense that even just thinking about our own lives, it's a good visual reminder that Christ is is the center and everything else can be held together by him. As there's so much, you know, in even geography, but just the things in our lives, the daily activities or whatever we need to get done. It's a visual reminder, right, to center mm-hmm. our lives on Christ, is what I'm hearing you say. Yeah. I think so. The yeah, the the good parts. And as well, I like the maps because they don't sugarcoat what the Mm -hmm. world is like. There are parts of the world that were considered uh, unknown or or dangerous or a little scary that showed monsters. And, you know, that shows that these undesirable or scarier aspects of the world and of life, unpleasant things we might be going through, that that they're really part of a Christ-centered world, and that we can still cling to the center even when we're going through more dangerous territory. That's interesting that those were those were included. And this was these were actual maps, or they were art when they were created. What was the intention of the? Are they called cartographers? Oh, that's a good question. That's a great question. This was really before the age of professional cartography, and okay. the artists or map makers who made most of these maps in the medieval, medieval period were artists. A lot of them would have been the same scribes and illuminators who worked on the images in medieval manuscripts. So they, they could be called works of art, their maps, their, their visions of the world. Okay. So recently I read an article, I think it was like a PBS news hour or something on the value of maps in the age of the GPS. Uh, I think it was titled why we still need paper maps, uh, something like this in your book, you talk about, uh, or offer thoughts on how medieval maps display the pilgrimage of Christians during that time period. Do you think paper maps or even like most of us use, most of us, you don't use paper maps anymore but use like Google Maps or Apple Maps or whatever on our phones. Mm -hmm. Do you think maps in general have any, what value do they have to offer today? Yeah, I think maps are always valuable and are still valuable. If you want to think in spiritual terms or even philosophical terms, a map, I think, always shows us how we think the world works. So if you think of a paper map or, or perhaps even, even Google Maps, but I'm thinking of the, 
the old-fashioned paper maps. Sometimes if you look at those and see, for example, you know, see, does it have a center? What is put in the most privileged position on a map? Or what is relegated to the edge? For example, when I was growing up, and probably for many of us, I remember world maps that purported to show a scientifically accurate vision of the whole world, but they really were centered on the United States, right? On mm-hmm. the Americas. That was the center kind of of the world. So those are interesting questions to ask when you look at a map, because I think they always show us something we believe about the world. The interesting thing about GPS or or something like Google Maps is that we personally become the center of our own world. Hmm. So as we move, if you're driving or something, everything is oriented to our position and the world sort of shifts and organizes itself around us. And don't get me wrong, I would never take a trip without my GPS. <laughs> I love it. But sometimes I, I find it you know, illuminating to think about that larger message as I follow that, that little pink line that's getting me to my destination. That's interesting, just thinking about our phones in general and how sort of self-centered, or egocentric they are for our lives, even like if we if we have apps like Twitter or Facebook or anything like that, we often were the center of those as well. On Twitter, we curate our own, what directions we would go, whose voices we're listening to. So it's interesting even thinking about it in the sense of maps too, that yeah, it's always like your location Mm -hmm. keeps track of it and everything centers around it. Yes. And gosh, I love that idea of Twitter as a kind of map. I hadn't really thought of that. It's a good idea to explore. I love it. Sure, you can, in the same way you're deciding what direction you want to go, where you want to travel, who do you want to see, what places do you want to see. Twitter, in the same way, right? You you completely decide. I mean, it's in some ways, like those choose your own adventure books that we had when we were kids. Mm-hmm. Yes, uh, yes. You get to decide who, right. who you're listening to. I mean, much of our lives are that way too. Right. And that can be, it can be a neutral thing, perhaps. But mm-hmm. yeah, I like the medieval maps and spiritual terms for how it reminds us that we, you know, our world revolves around Christ rather than the other way around. Right. Well, and even just considering, so for example, I'm not really into medieval maps and not in the same way you are. However, reading through your book, I was able to learn from those voices of people that I wouldn't normally have naturally been inclined to go learn from, right? And so I'd never asked you about your book. So you wrote a book a few years ago, and I think you alluded to it in the beginning, A World Transformed, Exploring the Spirituality of Medieval Maps. So you've shared a little bit about medieval maps. Can you share more with us about the book? And then also what originally drew you to deciding to write that book? Mm -hmm. Well, the book kind of explores just what I talked about a few minutes ago, this certain type, because there were other types of medieval maps, but perhaps this most popular kind of map in which the world is, is a circle and centered on the city of Jerusalem. And Jerusalem lies in the center of the three known continents of the world, kind of pulling them all together and holding them all together. And each chapter in the book explores one either 
sometimes a geographical area or one aspect of the map, always in relation to how that particular part of the map relates to Christ as the center of the world. And I came to write the book because as I was working on my doctoral dissertation, a world map was one of the main images in the manuscript I was writing about. It was a 15th century manuscript filled with a beautiful series of maybe 65 miniatures, the small pictures, and one of them was a world map. And that was sort of key to my interpretation of the other images and of the the text of the manuscript. And as I delved into, well, what what are these medieval maps? That's when I began to see how much uh, this medieval vision of the world was speaking to my faith. That's when it started to get really personal for me. And, you know, I began even in the year or two after my dissertation, linking it in my mind to some of these Bible verses. And I thought, what a beautiful lesson from the history of our faith. And I, I really wanted to share it to a more general audience because the maps are not very well known. And I think they just provide a beautiful, you know, a beautiful image of the gospel. In addition to that verse from Colossians that I shared, he is before all things and in him all things hold together. Another wonderful verse we can think of in relation to the maps is from Hebrews chapter 12. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. And I think the maps kind of provide a visual exercise, a way to meditate on this verse, a way to practice fixing our eyes on Jesus, because he is at the center of that image. And as we look at one of the maps, like the Hereford map, with its thousands of pictures and illustrations, Our eye wanders all over this beautiful map with its little images. And there are so many worthwhile things to explore on this map. But again and again, our eye keeps returning to the center, to the city of Jerusalem and to the cross of Christ. And so it provides practice in fixing our eyes on Jesus sort of over and over. And I still sometimes will use that map, the Hereford map, to sort of think about that verse as an exercise in how maybe in life also we can learn to fix our eyes on Jesus amidst all the things of the world that are vying for our attention. And in some ways, then the map becomes sort of like an icon helping. And and with icons, the whole intent of those pieces of art is to help us fix our eyes on Christ. Right. Yes. Right. It's kind of like there have been books written about meditating with icons. I think that one can meditate with a medieval map too, in a similar way. Yeah. And your, your book includes many of the the maps you're referring to, like the illustrations. So yes. folks who are listening, I mean, I'm sure they can just Google as well and find images but yeah, the, the book has all of them there and sort of gives a bit of an interpretation. In addition to the maps, your book also really uh, focuses a lot on the theme of pilgrimage. And it's kind of a thread throughout. Can you share more about what pilgrimage means to you and how that has been part of your life? Yes. 
Well, I got into pilgrimage, which is my new, oh, I will always love maps, but pilgrimage is one of my new big interests. And, and that is because the maps that I studied that are in the book, especially the Hereford map, it shows several important pilgrimage sites and routes of the Middle Ages. And of course, being centered on Jerusalem, and Jerusalem was the premier pilgrimage destination in the Middle Ages, the most important place you could go. And so that drew you know, my attention to, well, what's pilgrimage all about in the Middle Ages? And as I followed these routes and threads of pilgrimage on the maps, I came to deeply appreciate the medieval view of pilgrimage. And I appreciate it and love it because it's a fascinating historical practice and one that I think can inform our own faith journey today. And if you want to talk about why it's meaningful for me, what struck me as I read and researched more about what a medieval pilgrimage was like, what struck me was what medieval pilgrims were willing to give up and to go through to make a pilgrimage. And I am especially right now talking about pilgrimage to Jerusalem. Right. Who would have been the people taking these pilgrimages at that point in time? And how far is that? Right. Well, if you look at a medieval map with Jerusalem in the center and a pilgrim, say, from England or France, well, take England was pictured on the edge of the world uh, on the maps. So they were going on a journey from the edge of the world all the way to to the center. So it was a journey of some, I don't know, 2,000 miles or two or 3,000 miles. It was a long and difficult and very dangerous journey. So if you were starting this journey, a pilgrimage from Western Europe, for example, in the later Middle Ages, would have, after walking or riding a great distance, would then have crossed the Alps on foot because that was really the preferred route to go to the Holy Land. You crossed the Alps and went to Venice, and from there you sailed to the Holy Land. And after landing, you had another longest journey inland to the Holy Land or the city of Jerusalem. And so a journey like this you know, over mountains, across the sea. Uh, It took at least three months each way. And that's if nothing really went wrong. (laughs) Right. Right. If you arrived in Venice and if something happened, you got held up in the Alps, you arrived in Venice (laughs) at the wrong season, then you might have to wait all winter until the ship started sailing again. So you could be held up in Venice. And that's what happened, I think, to Marjorie Kemp, the mystic uh, who wrote about her journey in the 15th century. She arrived in Venice, I think in the winter, I guess just totally must have mistimed that journey, then had to wait in Venice for months. Not a bad place to wait, probably. Right, right. (laughs) Still, I mean, if this kind of was your life, your life became a pilgrimage in some respects, right? In a, in a literal way, if you're talking six months or more. Sure. Yeah. And so not many of us have that sort of time to be able to offer. And we're also no. not taking any pilgrimages on foot. Well, not one to Jerusalem, at least. Um, right. 
So what would you suggest if, what kind of pilgrimages could we do if we had limited amount of time or resources? Are there any that you, let's say, so I live in Pennsylvania. I'm not going to make it to Jerusalem anytime soon, although that would be delightful. But I have three kids. I'm a a grad student and work Mm part-time as well. So what suggestions would you offer maybe someone in our in our community, women in the academy who, you know, can't take a sabbatical right, right now. <laughs> exactly. I feel like I'm in the same place with the kids. And the, and by the way, even if we did have the, the time and resources to go to Jerusalem, we would not be going in that way. Sure, absolutely, <laughs> that, right. That, yeah. that the medieval pilgrim did. We cannot replicate that in any way. Right. And maybe we could replicate something like walking the Camino de Santiago in Spain. Sure. That's a little easier to sort of approach what a medieval pilgrimage might have been like in some ways. And But Jerusalem, you know, it would be totally different today. And I actually, I would love to walk the Camino de Santiago in Spain one day. Can I pause for a minute? Yeah. So for our listeners who have no idea what you're referring to there, can you share a little bit about what that is? Well, that was the most famous or the most popular pilgrimage route in Europe in the Middle Ages. And it started in in various places. You could go through France. There were various routes, all going through Spain to the Cathedral of St. James the Greater in Santiago de Compostela in Spain. And actually, I think it was the most popular pilgrimage destination in Europe, perhaps outside of Rome. Mm. And it's been experiencing a revival. Yeah, yeah. In the past decades, people walk part of the route or, or perhaps all of it. They say a pilgrimage begins when you walk out your front door. <laughs> so really, you could say you're walking, you know, you're doing the whole pilgrimage wherever you start from. Right. Um, and people find it, I think, meaningful on all kinds of levels, whether it's just a personal level or, or a or a spiritual Christian level. So I would love to walk that, uh, partly because I, I'd like to kind of see or just get a taste of what a medieval pilgrimage was like, mm. in part. But since, right, since I'm probably, I don't know when I would be able to do that. You know, if, if we can't walk out our door and take a pilgrimage like that, what, what can we do? And I'll tell you, I'll tell you one thing that, that we can all do, I think, and that is to take Um, a spiritual pilgrimage, which I think we're all doing in our life already. So I just talked about the the difficult physical journeys of pilgrims who went to Jerusalem in the Middle Ages. And there was a medieval mystic of the 14th century, and that's Walter Hilton, whom we talked about. He was an Augustinian cleric. And in the 1390s, he wrote the handbook that I mentioned, The Scale of Perfection. And within that is a wonderful section. He is providing advice to probably a woman starting off in the religious life who is asking for advice on kind of on spiritual formation. And Hilton wrote to her that our life in Christ is like a pilgrimage to Jerusalem. We we set off on the road because we want to be with Jesus and we find ourselves on the pilgrimage of a lifetime. And he really implies that thinking of our life, our walk with God as a pilgrimage, is a spiritual practice that we can do. It's a way to to move forward on our road. 
So he's saying that we're all sort of headed towards Jerusalem. Yes. Right. What would that mean in a spiritual sense, I guess, is my question, since we're not literally heading toward Jerusalem? One of the projects I'm working on is, you know, a kind of a, a book project or idea that would describe or set out what that means in terms of a practice. But we could think about it in several ways, about how kind of the stages of our journey to Jesus or about some of the things we experience. And I'll give you an example. One thing that medieval pilgrims on the road had to face was confronting a variety of, you know, we might say enemies. They might be uh, pirates on the seas or, you know, kind of a, high, a version of highwaymen who would, who would rob you. There were dangers from, from human enemies. And another thing is that in the late Middle Ages, when pilgrims finally reached Jerusalem, they were entering a territory that was really no longer Christian in political terms. Okay? It was occupied by the Mamluk and Egyptian sultans because the city of Jerusalem had fallen, to use that word, fallen to them in what, 1244. So later medieval pilgrims entered Jerusalem. They found themselves worshiping in what would have been to them really enemy territory. So there were, it was not a peaceful, serene, worshipful experience. Um, there were conflicts between Christian pilgrims and the Sultan's men and things like that. And to bring it back to our spiritual pilgrimage, our mystic friend Walter Hilton says that on your spiritual pilgrimage to Jerusalem, the pilgrimage of your life, you know, or of your day, that you will meet enemies. You will confront enemies on your path. And your enemies will shout at you. They will tell you to turn back. They'll tell you you're never going to reach your goal. And we will meet these enemies on our journey of faith. Now, our enemies, for the purposes of our spiritual journey, internal, right? Our sin, maybe, our doubt, our feelings of guilt, I don't know, maybe our, our, our laziness, whatever they might be. All these are enemies, and they shout at us to turn back. They tell us we'll never make it to Jesus. Hmm. And so one step on our spiritual pilgrimage daily is to face the enemies that will confront us. And what do we do when we meet these enemies? Well, Walter Hilton says one thing we do is that we keep on our way and we fix our eyes on our destination, which is Jerusalem, Jesus. And we remind ourselves, you know, we say to ourselves, I want to be with Jesus. So it's a little bit like the medieval maps and that we retrain our eyes on our destination, on our goal, on Jesus. You know, we fix our eyes on the prize hmm. and that that's one step in our spiritual pilgrimage. And I don't know about you, but I meet enemies, internal enemies like that every day on my pilgrimage. Oh, sure. Yeah. All sorts of voices yes. in our heads, right? Yes. I wonder too, you mentioned internal enemies, but I'm thinking external, perhaps like injustice or... Yes, right. Yeah. I mean, are there other... Right. 
Yeah. Yeah. I was thinking just, well, for medieval pilgrims, you know, oh, okay. I wasn't thinking about like political enemies, but yes. <laughs> right. But, right. No, I'm, well, I'm even thinking, well, eyes on the prize made me think of it too. Cause there's, I think a documentary series called eyes on the prize about the civil rights movement. But anyway, thinking through like, what would it look like to press on towards Christ both with our internal enemies, but also external, mm-hmm. not, not necessarily actual people, but systematic right. right. injustice mm-hmm. or things like that. Right. Although there could be actual people that are, could be. I mean, not, not pirates as the, <laughs> maybe not a pirate. <laughs> right. Or what were they? Highway robbers. Right. Right. Um, well, yes. Maps, but. Right. There could be people, you know, but for me, my worst enemy is myself. Sure. Yeah. I think in terms of, looking at our life, we could broaden the, the term or thinking of enemy and include things like injustice in the world or even particularly hard thing we're dealing with or a hard a hardship we're experiencing, mm-hmm. right? That deters you, that turns you away, that, that makes you think, you know, the shouts at you, you're never going to get there. Yeah, I think all those could be construed as, you know, the enemies of our faith. And Hilton says, keep on your way and think of Jerusalem. Hmm. Or even, yeah, just thinking through the Israelites wandering through the wilderness on their own journey back to Jerusalem after the exile, right? Yes. The the wilderness that you're wandering through or walking through and having to face Mm -hmm. all the different circumstances Mm -hmm. that might come your way. Well, do you have any other suggestions for people who would be interested in exploring more on the theme of pilgrimage? There is so much. You know, for me, I love to to take it back to the Middle Ages. Not that they invented pilgrimage, because that's been around for longer than that. But, you know, it was such an important practice. And the medievals kind of made it into an art form. So my focus, uh, I feel like what I can contribute to that topic it was very much the the medieval angle. Mm-hmm. And so if one wanted to explore that, you know, you could read a couple chapters in my book on maps that really explore pilgrimage. One chapter is really all about pilgrimage to Jerusalem, the center of the map. And another chapter is more about the pilgrimage of life that we take that's explored in several places on the maps. And in addition to that, Um, to see how some aspects of a pilgrimage journey, perhaps a medieval one or a journey of a different kind, to see how those might become a practice, you might check out a book like The Soul of a Pilgrim by Christine Walters Paintner. I think that's a really interesting book that talks about eight practices that you kind of incorporate or live out on, on the pilgrimage of your life. Okay, great. Thank you for those resources. It's definitely interesting thinking through how medieval maps can shape your spirituality. So to conclude, we, we usually end by asking if there's a particular quote or song or other set of words that have been meaningful to you lately. With what you have to offer us, perhaps yours might be related to a theme of pilgrimage. Yes, yeah, yeah sure. Well, I love all kinds of, of quotes and thoughts on pilgrimage, but you know, to close, I'll take it back to our mystic friend, Walter Hilton, who wrote about, you know, our life is a pilgrimage to Jerusalem, to Jesus. And in his spiritual treatise, he has sort of a, a quote or 
a phrase that he suggests that all spiritual pilgrims say as they're making their way on really what is a difficult road, right? Because our pilgrimage is not easy. Hilton says, repeat this, I am nothing, I have nothing, I desire nothing but the love of Jesus alone. I am nothing, I have nothing, I desire nothing but the love of Jesus alone. And he repeats that so many times in this section of a spiritual treatise that it's almost like a mantra, a Christian mantra, kind of along the lines of the Jesus prayer. It's something that we might repeat over and over to ourselves to give us a comfort, to give us courage, and to keep us on the road. I love it. That's beautiful. Just the idea of repeating it over and over, then it becomes something that when you're in a moment of hardship, that could come to mind and just be a, a reminder. It's sort of meditating on those words mm-hmm. in all circumstances, and then it comes to you when you need it. Yeah, it's very meditative. And one one thing one can do with, with that mantra, I am nothing, I have nothing, I desire nothing but the love of Jesus alone, is you could repeat that while, for example, you're walking a labyrinth, right, which is a, a curving, twisting, turning path that always uh, converges on the center kind of like a map. And it's wonderful to repeat Hilton's mantra in a meditative way as you're slowly walking a labyrinth, for example, or just as you're going through everyday life. Yeah. For me, I'm imagining myself walking my dog. I usually, that's my time, right? I have three children and my alone time is, uh, you know, in the shower and walking my dog. Right. And well, obviously, we're there, while they're at school, I get some alone time as well. But in particular, I like to use the time walking the dog to devote to prayer or, you know, just being present, more intentionally present with God. So I might try that mantra idea. Anyway, well, thank you so much, Lisa. We appreciate you sharing your thoughts and your time with us. Thank you, Caroline. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for joining us for this episode of All Shall Be Well, Conversations with Women in the Academy and Beyond. This is Caroline Trisick, and information about our guests can be found on our podcast page at thewell.intervarsity.org slash podcasts. This has been a production of Women in the Academy and Professions, a focused ministry initiative of InterVarsity Christian Fellowship USA. We value the contribution of podcast guests who are not employed by InterVarsity, and we acknowledge that the opinions of our guests may or may not represent the ministry, doctrine, or policies of InterVarsity. Thank you for joining our conversation as we engage in faith and life together. We'd love to hear your feedback. To share your thoughts or to learn more about who we are or the resources and connections we provide, we invite you to visit us at our online gathering place, The Well. You can find us at thewell.intervarsity.org.